Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for each and every one of these people that you brought here this morning. Lord, I pray that the songs that we sing would be true of our hearts, that we would truly believe that you are better. Um, Lord, we are desperate for you to move, that we are, we are desperate for you to speak today to show us that you really are better. Our hearts are prone to run to lesser things. Our hearts are prone to seek glory. But you're better. And I rest in the fact of the song that we just sang, that you are faithful. That we can rest in your faithfulness, that we can... (laughs) No matter how messed up we are as your kids, you are faithful. So Lord, help us to see your heart your father heart this morning. We pray all these sayings in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. Good morning. Happy Dudes Day, men. Here at Safe Haven, we don't just celebrate dads. We celebrate all dudes. So dad or not, welcome to Safe Haven. Dudes, we, uh, you're awesome. So there's that. Um, to kick us off this morning... I want to read us a little quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, Matthew chapter 6 is again a very searching one. Indeed, we can go further and say that it is a very painful one. I sometimes think that that, that it is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. That's really comforting. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us and it will not allow us to escape. There is no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one. But thank God for it. The Christian should always be anxious to know himself. But I repeat, thank God for it. Because it is only the man who has truly seen himself for who he is and what he is who will likely fly to Christ and to seek to be filled with the Spirit of God who alone can burn out of him any vestiges of self and everything that tends to mar his Christian life and living. Wow. As I was studying for this chapter, I read that and I was like, I'm done. I'm not, not this is not good. And I was like, I was, I was on the rotation to, to teach today and I saw that it was on money. And I'm like, oh, great. And, I was, and then I like started like playing my brain like what could be worse? It could be like on circumcision or reprobation or something like that. So, you know, here we are. Money, we're talking about money today and stuff and and the power that it has over our hearts. And so we're continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And for the sake of time today, we're just going to read the text as we go through instead of um, reading it all at one time. So Jesus is continuing the Sermon on the Mount and showing us what this life of this counter-cultural gospel life looks like. Okay, And so to kick us off this morning, a point of illustration... Two of my all-time favorite movies. Number one is hands down Shawshank Redemption. You can't touch Shawshank Redemption. Anybody else love that movie? Okay, okay. Well, I'm not the only one. For the longest time, I thought it was a true story. It's not. It's based on a book. Dreams are shattered if you didn't know that. Mine were too, so don't feel bad. Second all-time favorite movie is a Leonardo DiCaprio movie. And no, it's not Titanic. Okay? It is. Catch me if you can. I think it's going to be up here on the screen. Have you ever seen that movie? Anybody? 
Okay. For those of you who have not seen it, Catch Me If You Can is actually based on a true story. It's based on the life of Frank Abagnale Jr. <clears throat> and so in the movie, Frank is this young, smart guy who uses his wit, his charm, and his con artist skills to steal millions of dollars. Frank was a doctor, he was a lawyer, and he was a co-pilot of a Pan Am Airlines all before his 18th birthday. This is a true story. Unbelievable. His master of he was a master of deception. He was a brilliant forager. He forged his own checks. And his skill gave him his claim to fame. At age 17, Frank became the most successful bank robber in the history of the United States. Unbelievable. Interestingly, and this differs in the true story. You can go listen to his true story. On a, there's a TED Talk where he, he gave. It's phenomenal. But in the movie, um, Frank, throughout the whole movie, he's, he's wearing these different masks and these different identities, and he's trying to win his father's approval. If you remember throughout the movie, he goes and he meets up with his dad. He wants his dad to be impressed with him. And so um, he was hiding who he was to try to gain his father's embrace and his father's applause. And he wore these different masks and these different identities. And so I believe that this paints a picture of what Jesus is getting at in this text today. Jesus is going to give us a picture and he's going to give us these strict warnings of two types of people. These two types of people that live behind these hypocritical masks that Troy hit on last week. So a hypocrite is one that puts on a mask to hide who they really are and play a part that they're not really living out and so these masks are the mask of self-serving giving for glory and this mask of self-serving hoarding for glory and so we're going to see in chapter six uh, what Christian living is to look like in a in a world in a presence where we actively submit to God and depend on him and throughout this one chapter if you go and you look and you read every single time it counts, it says the word Father. It says the word Father in the Father or to the Father over ten times in this passage. And that's fascinating. We're going to tie back to that. So remember that. In other words, this scripture presents to us a picture of children in relationship to their dad as they journey on this crazy thing called life. And so before we ever even jump into this text, we're all prone to wear these masks. Okay, I'm prone to wear these masks, you're prone to wear these masks, to receive glory and applause. And so we're just going to jump in this morning, and we're going to start with, um, we're going to actually be in, if you were here last week, you saw that Troy jumped in to the middle part of chapter 6, and we talked about prayer and what that looks like, and fasting and what that looks like. And so we're going to hit verses 1 through 4 and verses 19 through 24 today. And you're going to see how they're tied in together. And so we're going to hit the last part, and then we'll come back to verses 1 through 4. And I th it's going to make sense later, so just stick with me. And the first thing we're going to see is this mask of self-serving in our hoarding. Verses 19 through 24, it says this in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so Jesus is using extremely practical illustration here in this context. He borrows from everyday problems that people would have experienced with their most cherished possessions. 
In the ancient world, people kept their valuables hidden under their floors of their homes. And their, the homes themselves were essentially made of mud bricks, okay? Like we're not, and, and, they, and the floors would have been like a dirt floor, okay? We're not talking oak, hardwoods. We're not talking concrete. We're talking uh, Palestinian sand, okay? That's what we're talking about. All right, so we're talking dirt floors. We're talking uh, mud brick walls. And so there would have been different types of pests that would eat their way through and invade in their homes and get to their valuables that were stored there and they would destroy them. Clothing was also easily destroyed. And just like us today, clothing was a distinguishing sign of the Jewish upper class. We wear certain clothes so people will think we have a certain position or power or or, or we want people to look at us and approve us by what clothes we wear. It's It's no different. But here's the deal, that in ancient times there, weren't, there wasn't dressers, there wasn't closets. Um, so their fine clothes and their things were exposed to destruction of moths and the elements of other pests. And here's the beauty of this. Here in Matthew, Jesus takes what the world seems valuable and he flips that bad boy right upside down. Just like he's done over and over and over again. So it might be good for us to ask, so what are treasures on earth? What does that even mean? What is, he, what is Jesus talking about there? Is it just stuff of lavish living? And here's the deal. When I've heard this text preach, which has been quite a few times, um, and, I, and I'm not putting this on the teacher or the preacher, whoever, whoever taught it. I, it's probably on my interpretation as listening. But I always checked out when I heard this because I'm like, well, that's just for lavish living. That's for people like P. Diddy. That's for people like Bill Gates. That's for the woman that drives the brand new Mercedes over there. Not me. That's for the woman, the people who's got the yacht. It's for the people who live in New York and live in life. It's not for me here in Alabama, Tuscaloosa. That can't be me. So is it just stuff of lavish living? Or is it something else? Let's keep in mind the context and the bigger picture and the deeper picture of what Jesus is getting at. Contextually, here in Matthew chapter 6, here are not the things that would naturally come to mind. The big house. We just said that houses were what? Made of mud bricks and dirt floors. We're not talking about big houses. We're not talking about expensive jewels. We're not talking about diamonds and rubies. We're not talking about nice cars. Jesus wasn't rolling in a a Land Rover. Like, they didn't have those, okay? Like, that's not a thing. So what's interesting is the only thing that Jesus mentions... And as getting out in our text, if you go ahead and you look forward to verse 25, which we're going to hit next week, he mentions food, drink, and clothes. Our needs. Our needs. This is big. The issue here is larger than whether or not you live in luxury. The issue here is more encapsulating than whether or not you live in luxury. It's all-inclusive. And so the question that Jesus is getting at in this text with these questions is do you trust in your money, in your stuff, in in all these things more than you trust in God to provide? That's the heart of the question. And another way to put it is, is your money or is your stuff the middleman or is it the main man? So... This is where the mask of this self-serving hoarding comes into play. Look with me in verse 22 and 23. Jesus gives this awesome example. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus here asks, how do you see this? How do you see what I'm talking about? So he asks, how's your eye? Is it healthy? Is your eye healthy? Meaning, do you see God as master? Or do you see your money as master? Do you see God as master and your money as slave? Or is your eye bad and are you hiding behind the mask of hoarding where your whole view of who provides for you is darkened by what Colossians 3 talks about, this covetousness where we always want more. It's never good enough. We always strive for more. And that's idolatry. So when we lay up treasures on earth, It's a selfish love and it's a hoarding of material stuff and that's based upon a sinful and a bad view of money. Thinking that money is what provides and not God. That's what he's getting at. This sounds familiar, right? This questioning of the provider. Think back with me into the garden with our first parents, right? With Adam and Eve, the serpent comes in and convinces them with his deceptiveness, right? Did God really say that? Did he really say that you shouldn't eat of that tree? You know he's holding back on you. If you go eat of that, you'll be like he will be. He's not that good of a dad. Church, Satan continually, still to this day, just like he did in Eden, cast doubt on God's character and his goodness, just like he did in Eden. And we pursue stuff and we rely on our money as our ultimate hope and trust is simply an unbelief in the gospel. It's an unbelief. It's believing that he's not good enough. It's believing that that he's not good and his character is skewed. Just like our our first parents bought into. And and when we put on this mask of this hoarding for self-serving reasons, we attempt to fill a God-sized hole in our hearts with marble-sized trinkets, man. For vain glory that's here one second and gone the next. For position and power and status. And check this. We trade intimacy with our dad. For earthly junk and vapor light pleasure. Just like that. So I have a 1979 Jeep Wagoneer. <laughs> it's literally a picture of what Jesus says that treasures on earth is. Like literally it has rust eating through it. Like I can stick my hand through the side of it. Like <laughs> it's pretty terrible. Like it is, it is rusted out. Um, the, the, there's probably malls making babies in my seats. Like it's, it's just falling apart. It's old. I mean, it's from 1979. It hasn't had anything done to it. But anyways, like, <laughs> and for those of you who've had the privilege of riding in the Lofoy adventure, adventure Wagon, your lungs, like, fill with exhaust fumes because, like, my exhaust is rusted through and it fills the cabin. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. But I love this thing. I love this Wagoneer. And, and, and I get, every time I get to do something to it to fix it up, whether I put new tires on or, like, I change a window crank or something, I have this sense of satisfaction. I treasure this thing. But every time I do something to it, it's just like that I want to do something else. Satisfaction is like a vapor. Verse 24, he goes on to say, 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Catch this, and I've said this already. Jesus is not saying, is not saying that wealthy people cannot be God's children. That is not what he's saying. Jesus knew about the wealth of Abraham, right? Abraham was a rich man. Jesus knew about the wealth of Job. Jesus knew about the wealth of the man whose tomb he would be buried in. Jesus knew about these people, yet neither Job nor Abraham were a slave to their riches. When Job lost everything, everything, the brother lost everything. In Job chapter 13, verse 15, it says this, Job, cry out, Job cries out, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Like we sing songs about that, man. And you're a slave to that which you serve. And you're a slave to which mask you wear. And if your life is consumed by hoarding of things and placing your trust in them, then you're a slave. And if you're a slave to your money, to your stuff, to Jeep Wagoneers, to whatever your fix is. And catch this, catch this, catch this. Not only material treasures but treasures of relational treasures such as your husband your wife your kids your boyfriend your girlfriend treasures of prestige your treasures of honor your treasures of position your status your your power anything that stops with this life if you're a slave to those things Jesus says you cannot be a servant of God that's heavy, man. That's heavy stuff. The two are completely incompatible. And we have to avoid interpreting this text only in regards to money and only in regards to rich people. We're all in the same boat together. And so, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say this too. Our Lord is concerned here not so much about our possessions as with our attitude towards our possessions. It is not what a man may have, but what he thinks of his wealth, what his attitude is towards it. There is nothing wrong with wealth in and of itself, but what can be very wrong with a man's wealth is his relationship to it. And that's talking about material wealth, that's talking about emotional wealth, that's talking about relational wealth, whatever. Rich, poor, middle class, and everywhere in between, we have treasures in some shape or form or fashion. Every single one of you do. Myself included. And Jesus isn't concerned with our treasures. He's concerned with your heart towards them. And so, Jesus instructs us to remove the mask and to lay up treasures in heaven where it can't be destroyed. So what are treasures in heaven? We need to know what these things are. Well, treasures in heaven are just the opposite. Instead of viewing our things as the source of our provision, we see God as the source of our provision. We see God as the provider. You cannot serve both God and money, but check this, you can serve God with money. And I think that sums up this whole section. You cannot serve both God and money. When I say money there, that's everything that I've mentioned. Relational wealth, emotional wealth, material wealth, all of that. You cannot serve both God and those things, but you can serve God with those things. You see the difference? And I think that sums it up. Think about others when you first 
Think about others first when you think about your stuff. Think about how you can give away what you get. Think about Jesus to the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. This, this dude was so consumed and so blinded by his sin. And he was so enslaved to his money and his stuff and his power. Jesus said, go sell all what you possess and give to the poor. And then you will have treasures in heaven. And then come and follow me. You want to be rich towards God? Jesus says, be rich towards others. That's good stuff, man. And Jesus is the gold standard here. He's the gold standard. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us this. He, being Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. For who? For us. Undeserving, needy people. So remove the mask of hoarding and love others who have greater need than you by giving what you have been given. And so if we are to give, and we're not supposed to wear this mask of hoarding, what should that giving look like? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is why we started where we started, because I think it paints a picture. So if we are to give, how are we to give? This comes into play the second mask that we're prone to wear, the mask of self-serving through our giving. Verse 1, it says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So what in the world is Jesus talking about with that righteousness? What does that mean? Here, contextually, it means Christian living, specifically in regards to giving, to prayer, and to fasting. Okay, and he says, beware of doing that in front of others. And he goes on in verse 2 and he says, For when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So the most common charitable deed done in ancient times by a Jew was to give alms to the poor, to give to the poor. You could do that in multiple ways. One of the ways you could do that was to go into the synagogue and give there, and then it would be given to the poor. Or you could see a beggar on the side of the road, and you could walk up to him and just give to them directly. In either scenario, the giving couldn't be done in secret, right? Like if you come into a room full of people in the synagogue and you give, people are going to see you. If you give to somebody on the street, there's people walking by. People are going to see you. However, Jesus isn't concerned. Jesus is concerned with the heart. He's concerned with our motive behind our giving. We're not to give in order to receive applause or glory from, other, other, uh, from men. In other words, Jesus is saying we're not to par- parade our religiosity. We're not to parade our holiness around in front of a watching world. This is exactly what the hypocrites were doing. And this could be confusing. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 5 when we went through, Jesus says this. He instructs us to do this. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Did you catch that? Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So what are we supposed to do here, Jesus? Like, what's going on? Do you have, like, multiple personality disorder? You, like, tell us to do something after you told us not to do something? Like, what's going on here? Like, I'm confused. 
if, if I'm supposed to do all this stuff in secret and not to be seen by man, if I'm supposed to pray in a closet behind closed doors, if I'm, if I'm supposed to wash up after and, and not look like give an appearance that I've been fasting, if I'm supposed to, to give secretly, if I'm supposed to do all that, how in the world are people going to know I'm doing these things? How are they to see the light that is shining within me if I'm supposed to do it in secret? What does that even look like? Is this a biblical contradiction? No, it's not. How is it not a contradiction? The last part of verse 16 in chapter 5. So that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. We're called to do these things at one and the same time. The Christian is to live in such a way that men looking at him or her will see their quality of life and glorify God. The believer must always remember at the same time he's not supposed to attract attention to him or herself. I'm reminded of John the Baptist. I think he's a great example for us to to look at. John the Baptist, back in John chapter 3, verse 30, I think is what it is. He says, he must increase, but what? I must decrease. John was a glory deflector. He said, don't look at me, man. I'm not even worthy to tie this dude's sandals. I'm not even worthy of that. Look at him, not me. This is not a contradiction. So it's easy to look at this text and to think that the choice is between pleasing men and pleasing God. But I think it's deeper than that. I think it's at its core between pleasing ourselves and pleasing God. It's subtle. Ultimately, our only reason for pleasing men around us is so that they may be, uh, so that we may please ourselves, right? Our core desire is to please others. We want to please others because we know that if we do, if we please others, they're going to think better of us. They're going to they're like us more. In other words, we're not pleasing ourselves. We're just simply all about self-glorification, man. We, we're glory hoarders. We want to be gratified. That's who we are at our core. And Jesus says there's no reward for that. Look at me in verse 3 and 4. He says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that so that your giving may be done in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. So if we're not to blow our own horn when giving to others, we're not to give in order to get notice, we're not to give in order to get praise or an appeased conscience or whatever your thing may be we're to give because of three reasons one because it's God's law two because you love others going back to Matthew chapter five and three because God's rewards are far better than the praise of man far better than the praise of man and so Jesus knows that we're going to struggle with this he knows the struggle okay And that's why he helps us out here. He counsels us to seek secrecy, okay? We're not to announce our generosity to others. In fact, we're not even to announce it to ourselves. And he gives this crazy illustration about two hands. He says this. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. This is a crazy good illustration. So for for the athletes in the room who play baseball, when you're up to... I'm not a baseball player, obviously, but I do know this much. When you're up to, when you're up to bat 
and you're, and you're ready to swing the, the bat at a ball going 90 miles an hour over home plate, you don't have time to stop and think about what you're doing, right? It's all in the muscle memory and your practice of what, you, what you've learned. Your muscles are, are conditioned to just swing and when to swing so it makes contact with the bat. Same goes for uh, musicians. Musicians who play songs like Brit and all them who are stupid good at these instruments up here. Their, their fingers are conditioned to hit the notes when to hit them and when not to hit them. It becomes second nature. In the same way as, our, as believers, our giving is to be second nature. It's like a trained moral muscle. Do you see how this works? Jesus is a genius. It's hard to be praised by others when that's the temptation, when nobody knows what you've given. And check this, you don't even remember what you've given because it's so natural. It's a, so thread into your DNA as part of your identity as a believer in Christ. You're not keeping tallies. It's just part of who you are. That's what he's getting at. Recall Jesus' message in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. In my opinion, it's one of the most shocking passages in all of Scripture, where Jesus returns and he separates his followers from the phonies, the, the, the true believers from, from non-believers, his righteous from his sheep, those who will enter eternal life. And, and, and to those on his right, he turns and he looks at them and he says... You're the ones that fed the hungry. You're the ones that welcomed the stranger. You're the ones that clothed the naked. You're the ones that visited the sick and in prison. Do you remember their reaction to Jesus? They asked Jesus, When did we see you and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you in? When did we see you naked and clothe you, Jesus? They didn't see what their hands were doing. It was so much a fabric of their DNA that they're not keeping tallies on when they fed somebody or when they visited somebody or when they loved somebody. They had the freedom of self-forgetfulness about what they did. And this is how we are called to give. So, now we're through the text. Two things I want us to look at real quick before we wrap this up. Two things to remember before wearing the mask. Like I said at the beginning of this, we're all prone to put these masks on. Whether it's the prone of hoarding for glory or whether it's the prone to give so that others may give us applause. We're all prone to these things. Two things I want you to remember. The first is this. The Father sees all. The Father sees all. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says this, And no creature is hidden from but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Psalm 139 verse 7 says this, For where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God is always present. He knows all and He sees all and He sees our every action and He sees our every thought. That's terrifying, isn't it? I know for myself it is. Psalm 44 verse 21 says how He even knows the secrets of our hearts. 
He knows you. You can deceive people. You can persuade people all day long that you are a selfless individual. But you're not fooling God. (laughs) He sees right through the mask. And so... (laughs) Think about how revolutionary it would be if we lived to where we showed that we believed that that truth was real. Think about all the mask and the shams and all that is unworthy within all of us. If we only realize that God is looking at all, is aware of all, and is recording it all, this is the teaching of Scripture. And this is the method of preaching holiness. It's not me standing up here and offering you some stunning experience that solves all your problems 15 ways to a better you. It's realizing that you're always in the presence of God. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, He sees you. And that's enough. And this is what should drive us to Christ and His cross pleading for the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts. Because if you're like me, you know how wicked you are. And so not only does the Father see all, but lastly, the Father's embrace is far greater than man's embrace. I don't know like you. I don't know if you're like me. It might be my, I'm like, like one of those staunch reform dudes, but <laughs> a lot of the times like I view God as some stingy cosmic boss that's reluctant to give us a raise, a bonus, or any type of reward in life. But as I read these scriptures, as I study this text, God isn't like that at all. Jesus is going to go on in chapter 7 and He's going to teach that even earthly fathers, even earthly dads, Even the worst dads give good gifts to their kids. He goes on to say, they don't go and give their son a snake when he asks for a fish. Church, our gracious, loving, kind, and giving Heavenly Father delights in giving us rewards for a God-glorifying life. And if your theology has an issue with that, I would suggest you get your theology from Scripture. Because that is what Scripture proclaims. And yes, it has been perverted and perverted and perverted by many, many people. But that is what it proclaims. Rewards here in verses 1 through 4 might include present benefits. If you live according to God's way, blessings will follow. Sometimes that's material, sometimes that's emotional, but it is always, always, always spiritual blessings. Always. Reminds you of James chapter 4, verse 8. We just walked through James. What was the sweet promise that the Father gives? Draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. A Father's embrace. Church, a Father's embrace is a treasure that neither mask can give you. Neither mask can give you that. And for the believer, what good are all earthly accolades? What good is all earthly applause if you don't receive your father's, if you don't receive your dad's embrace? What good is it? Earthly rewards are here today and they're gone tomorrow. Heaven's gain is here yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. 
Man's embrace is temporal. It's like a mist. It's like, just like that, it's gone. It's shaky. It's not solid. Man's embrace is enslaving. And man's embrace is dependent upon your performance and your effort. And man's embrace leads to death. However, the Father's embrace is eternal. There is no end to the Father's embrace. The Father's embrace is certain. It's not shaky. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Father's embrace is freeing. Why is it freeing? Because it is dependent on Christ's work on your behalf and not yours. It's not dependent upon your effort. And the Father's embrace leads to life. And so my question for you this morning is, which do you long for? Is this easy? Is everything that we've talked about easy? Absolutely not. It cost Jesus bearing a, lot, bearing a cross and being crushed. That's what it cost Him. But Jesus tells us that if we are to follow Him, we must do two things. You remember what they are? Deny ourselves and pick up our cross. That's what He tells us to do. And Jesus says, if we do that and we live a life a life lived in secret, dependent on the Lord and dependent upon His glory alone, then the Father will celebrate you openly and celebrate you directly. Did you catch that at the end of verse 4? And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. There's no middleman. The Father will celebrate you, delight in you, and reward you openly and directly. That's good news, man. I'll wrap it up with this. This quote, man, you can come on back up. In the words of J.R. Vassar, he says this, and I, I love this. It is better for our name to be graven in the palm of his hand than up in lights. We're so prone to want to be in the limelight. And at the end of the day, the limelight goes out. But if your name is graven in the palm of his hand, it's there forever. And so, what does this cause us to? Believer, let's start with you. Christ was crushed to remove the mask. He was crushed on a crucifix to remove the mask. And when we continue to put back on and wear these masks for self-serving reasons, we essentially look at the cross and we say, that wasn't good enough. And we put back on our mask and we perform like circus monkeys does for its enslaving master. And if that's you... I would encourage you like I had to do and I need to do to repent. Repent of your sin. Not only repent, but remember Jesus. Remember the gospel. Remember that He never gives up on us. Remember that He pursues us even when we're dumb, which for me is very, very, very often. And thank Him that because of His life, death, and resurrection, you don't have to hide behind a mask anymore because it was crushed at that cross. 
And the Father can look at you and delight in you. He can smile upon you because of what Christ has done for you. And so come to the table today. Come and take the bread and take the cup and remember what had to be done of Christ's body being broken and His blood being poured out so that the mask of sin that we have could be ultimately removed and crushed. Remember whose kid you are. That you have an Abba. That you have a dad this Father's Day that loves you and likes you. An unbeliever. This isn't your story yet. On the basis of Scripture, you are spiritually dead in your sin. And unless the Spirit opens your eyes and causes you to surrender your life to the Lord, to repent of your sin, to rest in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, His life, death, resurrection, His defeating your sin, defeating your death, unless that happens, you will remain an orphan. But, but, praise God for verses like Romans 5, 8 that says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you are within the sound of my voice, know that you have, that there is a father who delights in signing adoption papers with the blood of his son. And today could be the day of salvation. Repent of your sin. Rest in his finished work on your behalf. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you for thank you for removing masks. We're prone to hide behind masks. We're prone to crave wearing masks. But Lord, because of your great love for your kids, you take off the mask so that you can see us face to face and not see our wickedness, not see our evil, not see the nastiness. But as the Psalms say, because of the work of Christ and the crushing of our mask at the cross, that our sin is forgotten as far as the east is from the west, and our sin is tossed into the depths of the sea, not to be brought back up anymore. And so, Lord, if there is one in this room that doesn't know You, that is a spiritual orphan, Holy Spirit, will they see the loving heart of their heavenly Father, Draw them in. Crush their knees to repentance. I plead with you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.